You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Be seated, please. Last Sunday, I began looking with you at the letter of Paul to the Colossians in the New Testament. We're in Colossians chapter 1. As we look at this letter, today is the second time dealing with what you might call the introductory section that basically ends at verse 14. And as I've projected how I will study this or present it to you, the next verses that come, I can tell you, Next Sunday and Palm Sunday are verses of tremendous power and challenge, and there's, there's a sense in which I want to get at them, but, but we shouldn't look past the introduction because Paul says important things here as he's opening the letter. So I'm going to read our second look at this introduction. Now, verses 9 through 14 of Colossians 1, the apostle has been praising these folks and telling of his joy in their growth in faith in the gospel. And he goes on to say this, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, help us to rightly understand and take hold of these truths by the power of Your Spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Suppose you meet a fellow Christian in the gathering space as you leave the church today. Possibly during the week, you bump into each other at the supermarket and have a chance to talk and exchange briefly what's happening in your lives, and you learn that this person has some burning concern or development, a crisis, a family problem, maybe a newly discovered illness, and you have concern for this one. And as you part from your brief encounter, you tell this person, I will pray for you. Now, once you say that, which Christians commonly say, the question is, will you actually pray? Will you have an active and in some way consistent manner of taking that one before the throne of God and asking for His blessing and His work in that life? Or is it just a conventional platitude that we say, sort of a Christian way of saying, I wish you well? 
When you see that individual the next time, let me tell you, there are a few things you could say to that person, if indeed you say it in sincerity, than if you would tell them, I have not stopped praying for you. You know, I think if you hear that, it's a much more powerful thing than somebody just making the promise, I will pray for you. When you come and say, I have not stopped praying for you, you're conveying several messages. Number one, that you remembered the need that had been told. It's not that you just forgot about this person completely since you saw them last. Number two, unless you're an outright liar, you're telling them that you really did pray. And number three, you're even implying to them the fact that you realize continual prayer is needed, ongoing, for what they have presented to you. That's a tremendous thing to have someone say to you. I have not stopped praying for you. Be careful when you tell people you will pray. It should be a promise that you're ready to act upon. Last week, as I introduced this letter to the Colossians, we heard Paul write to a relatively uh, new group of Christians. Most of them, I think, had not known the gospel for very long. Paul had never met them, but he had reports from their pastor, whose name was Epaphras, who had established this church by the work of God and brought Paul reports about it. And Paul commended them for many things, especially their initial growth in knowing and seizing hold of the gospel with joy. Now, in verses 9 to 14, he does what he typically does in in most of Paul's letters. Usually in the beginning, there's a part where he talks about praying for the people he's writing to. So this is a, a common way for him to start. But he transitions here from speaking about God to men to speaking to God on behalf of men and gives us some of the specifics that he prays for. Now, you could read this, and and again, I think we tend to devalue a little bit the introductory parts of letters. We think, well, this is just the conventional language that you have to get past before you get to the real meat of the matter. But for Paul, this is not just conventional language. He is dissecting some of the particulars of how he prays for young Christians who need to grow and go forward in their Christian lives. I think you know how we most typically pray, and most people would fall into this category. We, we look at some obvious need in another's life. Jane's having surgery. We pray for safekeeping and healing through the surgery and, and recovery. Bill needs a job. We pray for him to get a job and to make the right contacts and to be able to manage his financial affairs and so on. A couple's having a troubled marriage. We pray for them to see it resolved in peace and and harmony, and reestablish love. And we pray for the practical things, so-called. And those are worthy things. You certainly should pray about them. I don't say you shouldn't. And yet our prayer concerns are usually uh, more on the level of these short-sighted practical things, and often when we're praying for ourselves, very self-indulgent things, than the petitions that Paul the Apostle had as he prayed for the spiritual lives and development of Christians like us. So we're listening here to a master intercessor, a pastor who really knows how to pray. I would like to say that the prayers of Paul are never like band-aids put on a cut. They're much more like antibiotic and surgery done to correct something deep 
that maybe isn't obvious to everyone, but it's obvious to his discerning mind. In the Greek language, as you look at the original text of the New Testament, it's fascinating that Colossians 1, 9 to 14 is one sentence. There's no break. This is one of those sentences that, that only Paul could do well, that he just sort of flows right onward without actually stopping until the end of verse 14. But we can break down what he's saying here, I hope, into some specific requests, and I'm going to look at them this way today. First, to see him ask that God will fill the Colossians with the knowledge of his will. Secondly, that they might live holy lives that are worthy of their God and Savior. And thirdly, that they may learn to give thanks to their Father in all things. I think there's a pattern here. I hope it's a pattern we can use as we pray intelligently and with some passion for others so that we would be able to tell people perhaps... I have not stopped praying for you. The first prayer request here in verse 9 is this, that God would fill you with all knowledge of his will. Paul says, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I read somewhere that on a high school student's report card once, a rather bold teacher wrote the notation to the parents at the bottom of the report card and said, if ignorance is bliss, your son is going to live a very happy life. Few teachers would dare to say that, I think, today. But spiritual ignorance is not bliss. It spells misery and disaster when we don't know things. And yet we are told that we are able to know God's own mind. Not, of course, in all the fullness of his mind, but to the extent that he has revealed it, we can know great and mighty things that God has made known. And it's vital that we seek these things and understand them. And so a problem right at the front door of prayer for all of us, myself and you and everyone, is we don't always know what we should be praying for. And your friend who has a presenting problem, we might call it, you know, I've just been told I have cancer. Well, you say, he's got cancer. That's what we should, well, what do you pray about that? What, what are the goals of prayer for someone in whom cancer has just been discovered? Do you pray other than just to say, Lord, make the cancer go away? There are other things that that person needs. And Paul's suggesting that one of the first things is to seek out the knowledge of the will of God. What should we be praying about? What should we be expecting from God? And I think most of us are way too confident in this. We think we know in our human arrogance. Well, I know what to pray about. It's just, it's not a matter of me not knowing. It's just a matter of God getting himself aligned with me and doing the things that I know he ought to be doing. And the faster he does them, the better. Well, that's a pretty arrogant idea when it comes to prayer. A more biblical idea is to come to the Lord in humility and say, Lord, I have many ideas of what is right for me here or right for my friend. There are some obvious things, but yet I'm not entirely sure how you and your providence and your wonderful ways might deal with this. And so, Father, I begin my prayer by saying, what do I need most here? How should I understand this situation? What should I be expecting from you? And will you purge away from me all the proud and mistaken ideas I have 
about what it is you want to do and teach me your will? How many of us start out praying for anything that way, believing that I don't fully know what God is going to do here? In Psalm 143, David pleads, Teach me, Lord, to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. Now, if it's logical that I don't know what God's will is, then it's logical that my friends may not know this, and I ought to pray. Lord, show this person your will. Unfold it for them. And Lord, it might be part of your will that you need to bend this person or even break this person of a false understanding or a false expectation so that they would be listening to you. Now, we need to be careful that we don't always think of the will of God as something mystical. We tend to think of it that way, and and that's usually wrong. Very much of the will of God, as Scripture speaks about it, is not mystical at all. It's what God has revealed in His written Word. That's where we start to know His will. In fact, I I can't assign an exact percentage, but I would be willing to say that that certainly three-quarters of the things we need to know God's Word, you know, is sufficient. He's told us enough. He's told us what we need. And we begin when we go to His Word and and absorb it and begin to think along the lines of its patterns. We do have the largest part of the will of God made known. Now, you might say that, well, that, you know, that's black and white. I've got the Ten Commandments. I've got do this, do that, don't do this. But I don't have this gray area thing that I'm dealing with in my personal life. Granted, you're right. But when you know the big principles, when you know that three-quarters of God's revealed will, it shapes your mind. It gives you a pattern to think by so that discernment of what to do in those gray areas, those finer-tuned areas where there isn't something black and white, comes more quickly. In Joshua chapter 1, the Lord told this new leader of Israel, Joshua, who was, boy, imagine following Moses you know, you talk about following a popular president or something. Imagine being the leader of Israel who had to follow Moses. And in Joshua 1.8, the Lord told this younger man how he would be equipped to be that kind of leader. The Lord said, don't let this book of the law, Joshua, depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night and be careful to do all that is in it. In other words, the Lord wanted Joshua to have a Scripture-soaked mind. Think of a sponge when it soaks up Scripture, and then suddenly the pressures of life come along and start to squeeze the sponge. What drips out? Scripture. The revelation of God that's been stored up is there to be applied to the situation. We think we see in what Paul is saying here when he calls these folks to pray for a knowledge of God's will, a quiet uh, counteractive to the enemies that were at work in the Colossian church because from what we can gather in reading the book about folks who were creating trouble there, they probably belonged to that great group of people you've probably heard of before in the New Testament age called Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, a Gnostic is a person who celebrates and prizes higher knowledge. They're kind of know-it-alls, if you will. They think they know secret things that other people don't know, and, and so they 
go around and insinuate that if you just learned the secret truths and the higher truths that they have, you would graduate to the higher levels of spirituality. Well, Paul was urging his readers not to look for some arrogant, special, secret, mystic knowledge at all, but rather to pray according to a humble frame of mind that said, I don't know all that I need to know, and it is in the revelation of God and His Word that I'm going to begin and ask, what does God want for me or for my friend in this situation? We begin by confessing poverty before the revealed truths of God, and we plead with the Lord, let me take the truths that you have made known and apply them to spiritual wisdom. Notice that it says here, not only Uh, that you would have the knowledge of His will, but through spiritual wisdom and understanding, these things would come forth. In 1 Chronicles 22, David was praying for his son Solomon, who he knew would be the next king after him. And David had a particular prayer for Solomon. He said, may the Lord give you discretion and understanding so as to keep the law of the Lord your God. David was saying, "You, you have the law, you can read what it says, but you need special discretion to apply it to the daily situations that are going to come along. And Solomon, David, his father, would have said, Solomon, my son, you are going to need enormous discretion. So our first concern as we intercede for someone else should be that God would fill them with knowledge of His will, that they would find out, that they would be submissive, that they would be willing to learn and be shaped by the hand of God and the revelation of God as the Spirit molds their minds and teaches them to apply truths of Scripture to their situation. After a time this way, we begin thinking God's thoughts and seeking God's goals instead of merely our own uninformed and vain imaginations. Well, secondly, verses 10 and 11 raise another petition of Paul's here for these people. And that is summarized by saying that they may live a holy life worthy of the Lord. You hear what he says there? We pray that you may live a life worthy of the Lord that might please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Paul contends you don't learn God's revelation for nothing. You learn it in order to live it. Once you understand it, it ought to start showing itself in your practical, everyday behavior. You ought to desire to please God. If you're called by the name of Christ, Christian, you ought to live to be worthy of that exalted name. Well, masses of people in our society today live not to please God so much as probably first to please themselves. Maybe secondly, to please their parents or their friends, or to please the values of a godless culture that is squeezing and pressing them into its daily mold. But Paul says there's another person who should be in your mind as the one you are trying to please, your God and Savior. Live so as to please Him and be worthy of Him. Now, that has to do, I think, with acting according to motives of honor or shame. Either you will know that you're living in an honorable way that God is proud of, or you're living in a way that He would be ashamed of if you had to stand before Him. 
And I might wonder today in the 21st century how powerful the motives of honor or shame really are anymore when I read, for example, as I'm sure you have, the, all the new problems of the cyber age of teenagers using their cell phones to send out naked photographs of themselves to one another and post them on the Internet. Wow, is there any shame left anymore? Do we ever act according to being held back from doing something because it's shameful? When I reflect on my own teenage years, and certainly was subject to all the same kinds of temptations teenagers are today, but I think I, I can, it must have been conditioned in me perhaps from my church or what, I don't know, but the avoidance of shame I think was a powerful motivator for me. You know, I often thought when I would come in on Monday morning and my friends would be, some friends or classmates would be bragging about the great drinking party and how much fun it was to be blasted drunk on Saturday night, I would, first of all, I would think, why do you want to do that? And secondly, I would think, well, I'd be ashamed if I'd been part of that. Somehow, God held me back, and yet that doesn't seem to operate for everybody. People from Asian cultures, I think particularly, are led this way to to judge their actions according to the honor or shame it will bring. They have a high sense, the Japanese or Koreans, for instance, of family honor. And so much so that, as you know, the the avoidance of total disgrace is a, a great motivator for them. Well, God has given Christians His Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to nudge us to conformity step by step to that image of God that we lost in the Garden of Eden. And he's working in a Christian to restore that image step by step. And so I think here the apostle is saying, look, think what the image of Christ would look like in you if it was fully established, and how far from that are you in your current behavior? Desire to live in a way that your Lord would say, I'm proud of you, not I'm ashamed of what you just did. I remember at least in one case, maybe a couple of cases in our children, dropping our sons off at college campuses, and maybe the, the only real sage fatherly advice I gave them, I remember one occasion saying this for sure, was remember who you are, where you're from, and who you belong to. In other words, live worthy of those who you belong to, whose name you bear. J.I. Packer writes about this personal holiness, this personal obedience of a life that pleases God, and he says this, personal holiness is a matter of both our motivation and our actions, of conduct and character, of divine grace and human effort. He said it's a spirit-led, law-keeping course of life that means persistently taking God's side against sin in our lives. And it's a single-minded, free, and glad concentration on the business of pleasing God. Now, you say, that's a tall order. God is perfect. God is holy. How do I please a perfect God? I'm bound to fail. Yes, you are. But don't be completely discouraged. Because look at what else Paul adds in this petition here as he goes into the beginning of verse 11. Not only should you... Seek this and pray for your friends to bear fruit in this kind of a life. 
but you will be strengthened in the doing of it. If you ask the Lord, you'll be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you can have great endurance and patience. So you see, when you pray for your friend, you don't just say, Lord, help them to live a life worthy of you. You add and strengthen them by your power in order to do that. Here's a wonderful thing that many people never learn about the gospel. They, they only hear that you should live in a way to please God. Stop. And so then they spend their lives in furious effort trying to please God and constantly are frustrated, saying, I can't do it. I just failed again. They don't see the rest of this. Live so as to please God, strengthened by His mighty power. In other words, whatever God calls us to do, He's also willing to provide the enablement to do it. This makes our God different from every man-made religious God, you know, who makes demands on people, do this, do that, obey my commandments or something, some false God, and if you don't, you'll just be frustrated. The God of the gospel says, live worthy of me and ask me for the power that will equip you to do that, and I will give it. In Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, a parallel passage to Colossians 1 here, we read God's incomparably great power for us who believe is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ by raising him from the dead. Resurrection power. God is willing to put that power that brought Jesus back to life, that power that was there when he spoke creation into being in some small measure of it, into your life when you seek it. Yes, we're feeble and weak. Yes, we aren't able to please God in everything we do, even when we do know His will. But we can ask Him to give us the patient endurance and strength that our needs require, and He will. And that's an important thing you should add when you pray for anyone in an intercessory way. This marvelous God, who freely provides the very things that he requires. Thirdly, in Colossians 1, 12 to 14, Paul wraps this off by praying one more thing. He prays that believers may give thanks to the Father. We tend to view giving thanks, I think, as a nice little grace note that if you remember to do it, it's a good thing, it's polite, But if you should happen to forget it, well, okay, don't worry about it. The Scripture values the giving of thanks to God in a tremendous way. Paul writes here, he prays that you may joyfully give thanks to the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. You see, giving thanks is the flip side of God being a God of grace. You're not deserving of anything he's done. You might feel like you are. There are times when you forget that you're not deserving and you act as if you were deserving. You never are. But when you give thanks, you say, Father, you've poured your benefits on me. Thank you, Father, that you've done this. Thank you that in Christ you've forgiven me and bought me. You see, you're constantly reminding yourself it's all grace. Not not a bit of it is owed. And when you're reminded of that, it puts you in a right posture before your Father. Thankfulness is a duty in prayer, but it's a sweet duty. It's not a burdensome duty. We are the ones that are blessed as we give thanks. And so as you pray for someone else, you should pray, 
Father, as tough as this person's circumstances are, teach them to be thankful and to express thankfulness, even in the midst of pain or difficulty or great challenge. If a person is full of anxiety or stress, I might pray for that one and say, Father, let John glimpse you as his great benefactor so that he will be so busy thanking you that he won't have time to be whining and complaining and feeling self-pity for himself. May he gain a greater trust in you as he pours out praise for what you've already done. You see, deliberately thanking God for his grace leads us into a different position in relation to the challenges of our lives. Instead of just grimly holding on and saying, oh, I don't know how, but somehow I'll get through, it's terrible, we say, no, God, God has qualified me to belong to his kingdom. And he is with me, and he is working on my behalf as he's worked before. And so I thank and praise him that the day will come when I can look at where I am now and say, God was at work. Praise his name as I thank him continually and even discover how to rejoice. In summary, we've seen Paul protecting a young church. It's like he's building an umbrella canopy over them of intercessory prayer. I remind you, these three things he prayed, and we can pray for fellow believers. First, that others will be humbled to learn God's will, beginning at his word. Secondly, that they will courageously apply what they learn and live holy lives that honor the Lord rather than shame him. And thirdly, that they may be thankful to him, because thankfulness makes us emptied vessels ready to receive even more of God's grace. About 30 years ago, a remarkable Old Testament passage jumped off the page to me, and it's, it's remained that way every time I've seen it since then. The verse is 1 Samuel 12, 23. Everywhere I've gone in different churches for several decades, I've had custom notepaper printed by a printer that's not the church stationery. It's stationery that I use to write thank you notes or personal memos to people or a little message to somebody. Seems like emails are taking the place these days unhappily of, of personal notes. But I use this notepaper for short things, and at the top, of course, is my name and the, the address. But down at the bottom, I have the printer put on 1 Samuel twelve twenty three. The verse says this, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Now, I can't claim that everybody I ever write to or communicate with or relate to that I pray for in a daily, unceasing way, but it it does express at least that I am echoing what Samuel said there in 1 Samuel 12 as he was saying farewell, in a manner of speaking, to Israel as he knew he wouldn't function much longer as their prophet. He was pledging to them that even though he would no longer have the unique office of leadership that he'd held, he wouldn't stop praying. In fact, he would regard it as his personal sin if he didn't pray for the Israelite people. The Puritan John Flavel wrote this one time about his own father. He said, I bless God for a tender Christian father whom I know often poured out his soul in prayer for me. And I think today, was it not a strange thing that my father prayed for me more and better than I ever did 
for myself. Intercessory prayer is extremely important. There are people in your life, in your sphere of contact, who need you to pray for them. It's a tool that God will use. And sometimes you won't see the full array of benefits that are going on in their life, but you need to pray for them. We can't estimate the grand total of the blessing that God brings into other lives when we, His people, sons and daughters, called by the name of Christ, intercede for others. God forbid that a Christian should cease to pray for the church that God is gathering one by one from the four corners of the earth and bringing under the name of Jesus Christ and His gospel. And so I ask, what person might you greet the next time you see them and be able to say to this person in all sincerity, I have not stopped praying for you. Our Father, we ask that you renew in us this task of prayer. We can't possibly pray for everyone and everything, but you've put certain people on our hearts relatives, neighbors, work associates, people who are key in our lives. Call us to the task of prayer, even if it be only a minute each day that we lift up that person and pray for them to know your will. Pray for them to do your will and to bring honor to you. And pray for them to discover thankfulness before you. Do a mighty work as your people. Do not stop praying for others. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.